welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor Jeff, how do you know there's a God? And I say it's simple math. God either exists or he doesn't. So let's be cynical. Worst case scenario, there's a 50-50 chance. And I like those odds. That's wrong. Shelly, put your hand down. Sorry, please continue. It's okay, Mary. It's Sheldon, right? Yes, sir. Well, Sheldon, why don't you come on up here and tell me how I'm wrong? No. Okay. Let's give him a hand, everybody. What's happening? Shelly's going to eat him alive. (laughs) So, you were saying? You've confused possibilities with probabilities. According to your analogy, when I go home, I might find a million dollars on my bed, or I might not. In what universe is that 50-50? So, what do you think the odds are that God exists? I think there's zero. I believe in science. So, you don't think science and religion can go hand in hand? Science is facts. Religion is faith. I prefer facts. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Here's a cool fact for you. A lot of famous scientists believed in God. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, even Charles Darwin. So Darwin's right about God and wrong about evolution? Now you're getting it. Let's give it up for Sheldon, everybody. What a good sport. Oh. Well, welcome to our series we're calling Unbelievable. I'm joined here by Sunder, who uh, is known uh, by other names to a few of us, Dad, (laughs) Grandpa, uh, being some of those other names. We are having a conversation with you over these four weeks about different things that people find maybe hard to believe or that would not be typical, and not just a matter of issues, but actually I'm interviewing my father through this as uh, part of his own journey. And that clip we just watched is, is funny, but also real. It depicts kind of this real sense in which many people feel like faith and science are at sort of, um, are mortal enemies, you know, that, uh, that one uh, must have victory over the other, that somehow if one is true, the other can't be. Um, and maybe even if you don't see them as, as enemies, some might describe, look, like faith is in the realm of like feelings, um, beliefs, uh, tradition, ritual, um, but science is in the realm of facts and things that are concrete and not have anything to do with feelings and more about research and lab results and all of those kinds of things. And um, I think it's fair to say that um, some Christians or some Christian traditions or maybe some churches can either directly or indirectly give the impression that science is somehow uh, a little bit of an enemy or, or an opposition. Um, likewise, I've heard others, you know, certainly in the new atheist movement with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, where um, religion is itself an enemy of, you know, ultimate truth, which is science. And while we recognize, you know, where some of those kind of beliefs come from, um, I want to enter into a conversation today uh, where I'm interviewing my dad on this um, to actually take the conversation in a different direction and say, is there some other way actually to consider these things? So dad, thanks so much for uh, joining uh, in this and having this conversation. Um, 
you know, my mind actually <laughs> makes me go, I see you've, you, we have show and tell. Last week you brought <laughs> something from India. This week you brought something that normally we don't allow in this building. It's a Red Sox hat. It reminds me of um, nine years ago, my dad and I took a trip. We took a trip to Boston right. because Boston was the city where you um, originally immigrated from, right. from India, mm -hmm. and you went to MIT, right. uh, Massachusetts <laughs> Institute of Technology. Um, he was showing me his degree. When you go to MIT, your, your degree gets, you get a nice book or whatever. Mine was just rolled up in a piece of, <laughs> as a piece of paper. But anyways, you earned it. Um, we went there, actually, because um, you uh, had said last week how your whole life you'd wanted to be an engineer. Mm. And so when you left India, you went to India Institute of Technology and you went to MIT, which was, an, in many ways, still then is kind of a mecca of study for sure, all yeah. kinds of things, engineering included. So we go to, um, we go to Boston and... I, of course, yes, I wanted to look and see these bastions of, uh, of education, but also we went to Fenway Park, right. which is another bastion of something, right? Baseball, <laughs> it's actually where you grew up, yeah. fell in love with North American sports. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't fully brainwashed. I'm a J Blue Jays fan, but so we, we went to Fenway to see a couple of Jays games, and then we went over to the campus at MIT and Harvard to see them right. both, and we run into an old professor of yours. Yeah. I mean, we were just walking around MIT. Yeah. And we run into an old professor, and, um, and you guys sit down and start, and, and you said a couple things to remind him of the thesis that you had done, yeah. and the two of them just started talking, and I, you know, I knew they were speaking English because I heard words <laughs> like and and the, but the rest of it I didn't understand what was going on. I was just zoning out, wondering where, where, what pub we were going to eat at that night and what the baseball game was going to be like. But anyways... That's your journey, um, and you know, I sometimes you became a pastor when I was four, mm. but I forget in a sense that you know, uh, before that you had a life um, mm. hard to imagine before kids, <laughs> yeah, but, I know. and that you you studied mm. uh, engineering, mm. and so I want to talk about this in terms of your journey <laughs> of someone who was a follower of Jesus, but also someone deeply committed to and in a sense follow a follower of science as well. Right, yeah. So you went to MIT. What did you What did you study there? Well, I studied mechanical engineering. That was my undergraduate degree in, and I had my master's degree was all in mechanical engineering as well. It was particularly in the field of fluid mechanics and heat transfer. And uh, it was just a fascinating field. What, to me, what was absolutely outstanding was some of the stuff that we learned at the beginning of the course had already changed by the end of the course because the research was being done down in the basement. I mean, studying in a place where there's such groundbreaking research that over the 13 weeks of a course's duration, you have to correct what you learned at the beginning. Wow. It was quite a place. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were also, I think, introduced to bacon there, which is also a <laughs> yeah. little-known fact about yeah. my <laughs> Yeah, for But sure. also, that was a part of salvation yeah. as well. Yeah. Pepper um, steak. Pepper steak. Pepper <laughs> okay, <laughs> see? Lots of dramatic life changes. <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, did you encounter, when you're at MIT, did you encounter any sort of sense of tension between, you know, this place and environment of science and research and, and faith? And mm. your faith, you, were, you had become a follower of Jesus at this mm. point. Did you feel any tension of that? Was that ever called out for you in any way? Well, surprisingly not, but first, and it just happened to be my experience because uh, when I first became a follower of Jesus, what fascinated me was the scriptures. Mm. So for the first four or five years before I ended up at MIT, from the time I first followed Jesus, was I was just devouring the scriptures. And so I was learning so much about that 
that one realm. Tension only comes when you're focusing on the two and putting them against each other. I was totally focused on this new area. I've been studying science all my life, as it were. So I was focusing on the scriptures. Uh, Power to Change was an organization on the campus. There were some of the greatest Bible teachers that I'd ever heard. So that's all I was devouring. And on Sundays, I would worship at a famous church called Park Street Church on the Boston Commons. We talk about history, you know, mm. in there. And Dr. Harold Ockenge was one of the great leaders of the evangelical movements in the 1930s. He was the preacher. He would preach without notes at all, teaching. And I just devoured all that. So in one sense, there wasn't any, any tension at all. Uh, the second thing that contributed, it happened later, the second thing that contributed was in the college and careers group, as you'd call it, imagine studying college and careers in your church on Sundays with 25 to 30 graduate students who are all studying at Harvard or MIT or places like that. So these were no intellectual slouches. And yet they were all people who had a personal faith journey. And so the milieu that I was in was one that wasn't really throwing up much tension at that time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's good, I think, interesting yeah. to it know. It came later, but yeah. not at that time yet. So, speaking of later, yeah. you move on from MIT, right. you move to uh, Toronto, and you started working at Atomic Energy of Canada right. in, in nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. So, tell me a little bit, what, what was that job, br briefly, in <laughs> yeah. very simple layman's terms? Well, very simply, you know, the Canadian uh, uh, nuclear reactors, uh, there's the nuclear reactor core where the nuclear interactions take place and heat is generated, but then there's a secondary system called the heat transport system that actually has water flowing through the core, picking up the heat, and then that goes into boilers and boilers evaporated, and then the steam runs turbines, and we get electricity from Ontario Hydro, you know, who are, who are our main supplier. So I worked on that heat transport system, so I was able to use my background study in fluid mechanics and heat transfer. So it was just 11 amazing years, and then again working with uh, people, and then last seven or eight years was that on uh, the safety of nuclear reactors what happens to be one of the safest forms of power generation and uh, our, my team was involved in uh, computer simulation of hypothetical accident sequences things that might happen and might go wrong and what kind of safety system would intervene in time to protect the public so it was very fascinating work you know so again, mm. that's an environment where you're surrounded yeah. by people who are <laughs> right. involved in science. Yeah. Did you experience any, any, anybody you know, interact with you around your faith in that and did questions of like, oh, are these things, faith and science, they belong together? Yeah. Did that ever come up? It was interesting. There were, there were individual one-on-one -on -one conversations that had people. In fact, one of the guys who really responded was actually a Jewish guy, you know? Mm -hmm. He was very interested. He and his wife would immediately have us over to their home and we developed our closest friendships with a guy who at that time probably wasn't even practicing as a Jew. But as a result of my conversation with him, he went back to the synagogue <laughs> and he and I would have some amazing conversation. But it was, and he was a brilliant nuclear physicist. Mm. Again, no tension. But I remember my, the first real tension, we were having dinner. Uh, we had a wonderfully close-knit group and so we often went once a month out for dinner to restaurants and stuff like that. And uh, he, we were just talking about something and then he said, you know, my, my mother-in-law doesn't believe in evolution. And I said, and John's my boss, I said, John, I don't either. He said, what? I'm losing my faith in you, Sundar. <laughs> you know? And because I, he, he trusted me a lot in terms of my work. I yeah. said, John, if you give me half an hour, let me at least tell you why. He yeah. said, okay, you got half an hour. Yeah. And so I just shared with him the historical basis for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And that's all I talked about. I talked about the fact that I, I worship a living God. I was, I'll never forget, he said, he said, if that's your basis, it's a good one. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let's get into this now. Hmm. Um, why do you think, like, let's say some Christians or maybe their perception mm. uh, Christians have or churches or church leaders, whatever, might think, oh, okay, science is somehow maybe an enemy of the faith. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what is that about? I would say probably the single biggest uh, factor that is at work, not the only one, is something that uh, a very brilliant writer named Ask Guinness introduced me to. He called it the plausibility structure. What does he mean by that? Let's say, for example, you're examining, uh, say, say, take like, an issue like evolution, for example. There's a certain amount of facts that people will marshal in favor of evolution. There's a certain amount of facts that people might marshal in favor of creation. So let's say you've got the same set of facts, but you then go to university at Harvard. Without any of the facts changing, the evolution is likely to feel to you to be more true. More because plausible. The, because yeah. plausible. Because the entire structure around you, the professors, most of the people who study there, are all believing that. And so even though the facts have not changed, the plausibility of those increases. So that particular interpretation becomes attractive. Now, if a, another colleague, a friend of yours, say, in, in high school, having the same facts, decided to go to a Bible college in the Midwest, he or she will find that the creation side of it is more believable. Again, not because the facts have changed but because of this thing called plausibility structure, which is why I think many, many people struggle in their first year of university, because they are faced with a plausibility structure that has changed, and they've not done their homework in terms of understanding the rational dimensions of their Christian faith. That's one issue. The second one I think I would call is mental laziness. So you have this question, oh yeah, what about this, what about that? You, know, you go to university, you come back, and you start firing questions away. I'm actually thinking of a dialogue I've had not too long ago. Actually, this young man is in his late, early 30s. And we wanted to talk about these things. So I would raise a lot of questions. He would raise questions. I would start giving him answers. But then he wouldn't read. He wouldn't follow through. He would simply come, come back with another set of questions. And I finally had to say to him, I said, we've been on this exchange for about six months now. You have avoided every single question that I've raised. And then the conversation stopped and he didn't continue after that. So I think mental laziness can sometimes be a factor on the one hand. Yeah. And I equally on the other side, people of faith, for example, are so afraid to even consider the possibility that I might need to wrestle a bit more that they out of fear uh, move back. Maybe both people move out of fear. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so I mental, so plausibility structure and mental laziness, I think are probably two factors. Yeah. On both sides, if you can say that. Mm -hmm. So for you, in your journey of sort of saying, well, you know, you, you didn't feel like when Jesus was calling you to follow him, he mm. was calling you to check your brain or, uh, yeah. you know, or your desire and mm. passion for science at the door. Mm -hmm. um, how have you sort of, um, how, how has your, um, even your understanding of science, but maybe even other what we would call non-religious disciplines, yeah philosophy, logic, yeah. art, whatever. How have you seen as you looked at those things that they actually have not torn down faith in your mind, but have actually strengthened and helped you grow in it? Because I yeah, think that's yeah. the, the idea that somehow you have to, either you hold fast to one, or if you embrace all the others as saying, well, there's nothing, then, there's, then you let go of this. Mm -hmm. It's a false dichotomy. It's yeah, a totally. false choice. Yeah. Well, uh, I think so in your own several things. I'm not sure that this was a linear development, you know, sure. exactly, but there was, these are the kind of pieces that formed the puzzle. I think, think of it this way. If God is the creator of the universe and earth and human beings, then in principle, there should be no contradiction. You wouldn't expect a contradiction between the creator, who's the object of our faith, and his creation, which is the object of our scientific studies as well. So in principle, you should not expect that at all. Say so, that again. Say yeah. that again. So that, for example, because if God created the universe and if God created the world, God is the object of our faith side of our life, if you will, and creation, universe, atmosphere, whatnot, is the object of our scientific effort. 
Well, if one is the creation of the other, then they sh in principle, you would expect a beautiful harmony. You would not yeah, expect you're not any... not inherently at odds. Exactly, any internal, internal contradiction. Yeah. Sort of like if a, if, a, if a novel that you read, for example, the story developed a certain philosophy, there's a pretty good reason to believe that when you've, if you've got to know the author of that story, he or she probably functions out of that philosophy. Mm. There's no contradiction between who they are and their creation. That's kind of a big picture reason for that. And that they're two separate things. Like even the author story analogy is helpful mm. in terms of saying they're two separate things. They're very connected. Yeah. But one isn't the same as the exactly, other. Exactly. That's yeah. a good point. Because one, but one is burst out of the other or comes from the other. Yeah. Creation and creator. That's, that's one thing. The second thing I've found, and we'll probably can probably come back to that later when we talk about worship, for example, but if God is who he is, then it should stand to reason that we can't understand him completely. Because if I succeed in understanding this postulate called God, mm. so that I can make it fit into my science and not have to have faith, uh, well, that's possible, but whatever God you've believed in at that point is not you, a God at all. He created it. He's smaller than your own mind. <laughs> yeah. First of all, if you understand God completely, he's smaller than you. Secondly, he created you. You didn't create him. Yeah. So that's one thing. Secondly, I think you mentioned about other disciplines. Mm -hmm. This was, MIT was great for this reason. I mentioned to you a few minutes earlier that up till that time for my first four or five years, all of my studying had been in the scriptures and learning a whole lot. And because it was so systematic, I didn't know. Just the faith side, even looking at just the faith side, it wasn't just an irrational, I believe this and I believe this and I believe this and the twain shall never meet. Right. There was an amazing internal consistency yeah. in the scriptures and the life of Jesus and the Christian life as I understood. That was, so it was feeding my mind. It's interesting that God tells us to love him, not only with our hearts, but with our minds as well. And so that came naturally to me. So this God was a God whom I could love with my mind. Yeah. Didn't have to check out. Everything made sense to me. Yeah. Like C.S. Lewis said, mm -hmm. you know, I believe in God like I, or the Christian story, like That's I believe in the sun. Absolutely. Not just because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Okay. And that takes and us to the... It starts to make sense of the world. Not everything. Yeah. But it actually is a way that brings together things. It isn't this compartmentalized you know, I, like Ikea, there's a bucket for everything. Yeah, I have yeah. my religion over here and I have this over here and my relationships are here and uh, well, the way I think about money or sex is over here. There's an integrating experience. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is where the second thing, I, I talked about the church that I go to go. There was a guest speaker by the name of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. And now Schaeffer, already he knew, although he knew the scriptures very well, he was actually a philosopher. Mm. And so he wrote an, two books called Escape from Reason and God is Not There and God is Not Silent. And for the first time, I began to see, oh my goodness, I can actually delve into the whole rational dimension of the Christian faith. Not just the fact that in itself it was making sense, internally, but that it actually matched several other things. So I began to read all the subjects that I never liked in, in school, mm -hmm. philosophy, history. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I discovered these could inform my faith tremendously. Uh, for example, even going back to my conversation with my boss, I didn't respond by arguing with him about evolution. I just told him, hey, let me give you the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a historical issue. The meaning of the resurrection of Jesus is theological. But whether he rose from the dead or not, it's a, question it's a historical for history, question. Not for science. Yeah, yeah, and so I understood that. And then reading Francis Schaeffer, I learned a lot about how to think about some of the big philosophical issues in life as well. And I realized, oh my goodness, every other dimension of study as well is beginning to make a lot more sense. You know? Yeah. So all of that began to, and I discovered a, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, his writings at that point. C.S. Lewis, for those of you who may not know him, uh, was, was a layman, what you'd call a, a layman. He was a, a professor of medieval and renaissance literature at Cam Cambridge University. 
and he one of the one of the best articulators of the practical dimensions of the Christian faith in everyday language and he had some of the most amazing intellectual insights and we can probably talk about a little bit later about how reason and morals and ethics none of these would make any sense at all without God in general and the Christian faith in particular yeah so that was very helpful you know it's interesting Christopher Hitchens, uh, who passed away a little while ago, mm. he wrote the book, um, God is Not Good. Mm. And he would be sort of part of what we call the new atheism. So very mm. strong you know, commitment to mm. science mm. and related to this, like that religion is bad, uh, it, it's not good. Um, he was one of the few people to admit that if you really embrace a worldview where there is no God, there is no transcendent meaning, there is no, quote, capital R, reason that you are on the earth, uh, he said it's a very bleak uh, way to live. He said, all, he said very few people can actually live by it because yeah. it's so depressing. Yeah. And, and so I think that's part of it saying, um, in a sense, it's almost like overplaying, like science as a discipline has, uh, tends to uh, deal with the question of what? What is? What is the earth made of? What is the human body made of? Um, why does the, you know, the, the blood flow in a certain way? How does the skeletal structure, the muscular structure, the neural system, how does all that work? The what? But when you try to ask science why, why a human being is on, there's no, that, those no. are other questions like philosophy and faith and higher questions of purpose. So it was almost like the, the, to say that science is the answer is actually taking a discipline that was only meant to answer a few questions and trying to make it answer all the questions of meaning and morality and origin, where do we come from, destiny, where are we going? So in a sense, it's like you need more than just science in the picture. So it's a, a bit of an uh, oversimplification to say it's either science or faith. Yeah, and I want to go back to the Hitchens comment because you're absolutely right. Uh, precisely because science cannot answer the why and the meaning questions, the intellectually honest ones, like you quoted Dawkins, I think it was, or Hitchens, Hitchens he said, you really have no basis. You know, you got to, but the problem is you can't live like that. Yeah. To truly live life without any meaning is, is despair. Nietzsche was probably one of the few men where he went crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And Os Guinness said something absolutely brilliant. He said, very few of us have the emotional and the intellectual courage to live with the logical consequences of an atheistic presupposition. In other words, if God is not there, there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as meaning. But to live that way requires such courage mm. that you give up. He calls that the despair end of the spectrum. But he said, because so few people can handle that, they have created the diversion end of the spectrum. So we surround ourselves with movies and music and sex and this, that and the other and social media these days so we can divert our mind away. So we have the depression end, mm. the despair end of the spectrum and the diversion end of the spectrum. Mm. And we are living in this world of diversion so we don't have to think. We don't have the courage to go all the, all the way there. We can't mean it, import any meaning. And so we create this meaning. One man called it philosophical smuggling. Yeah. You smuggle meaning into life where your presuppositions should not rationally allow you any meaning at all. Right. If you believe in a worldview, there, there is, you came from nothing, you're going to nothing, there's no real purpose. Right. You have to find meaning somewhere else, not right. from that worldview. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's, you know, the, uh, what I love about this conversation is it encourages us to say, we, like you said, we shouldn't be lazy about these other disciplines right, yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that as we learn, we actually find that it's possible 
to have an integrating view and perspective. And not to say that someone who's a, a, devout, you know, a committed historian or an expert um, in a field of science or literature or art will necessarily always say, oh, I believe in God. This is led yeah. me to Jesus. But it's just to say, well, they aren't, um, they, they aren't uh, uh, mutually exclusive possibilities. You know, I was thinking, reading the article the other day on Dr. Francis Collins, right. who um, sort of was the lead on the Human Genome Project right. mm-hmm. and did something that, you know, I read a bit of the article and then stopped understanding what he was talking <laughs> about. But the, the, uh, the article was just saying he's made one of the most significant contributions to science in the 21st right. century. Mm-hmm. His own story was, he said, I had come to a conclusion about God without doing any research. Well, and he exactly. said, I was ashamed to say, mm-hmm. I'm a scientist. I believe in research. And when he started to look at the research and the data, he said, I realized this was actually true. Hmm. And you can actually look, because he's playing a lead role in terms of understanding coronavirus and vaccine development now, hmm. uh, too, which, which I think is amazing. And so I think that's good. There is an encouragement here, I think, even in this brief conversation to say, you know, that um, we can think about our faith in terms of beyond just sort of the realm of even like uh, we were talking about the plausibility structures, that we're encouraged to do that, that we shouldn't be afraid of other disciplines of science and history and philosophy and art and saying all truth is God's truth and it exists in all these and God himself created a world that wasn't primarily or only just spiritual it was physical it was material and built into this is the capacity for asking the question why uh, right even the fact that we ask why is an important part and so um, I, I just want to encourage people on, on this journey. Like, there's probably more questions that are coming up about this. We we uh, we we can put ourselves both forward as people. You feel free to approach <laughs> mm. with questions about this. I want to take a pause. Um, the band's going to lead us in a song that's called "So Will I," and it's a clue um, to actually. And it's sort of a, it's a song, poetic song about about creation, about the world, and how, in a sense, it points us to God, not just merely as sort of in a process of intellectual study, but into something else that I want to talk about just for a few minutes as we close today after. And so if you know it, you can sing or you can just listen. If you never uh, really contemplated the words before, maybe just, just listen to them uh, and let them lead you into, into worship. Every burning star, signal fire of grace. 
You're the one who never 
That song, I think, actually points us to something that if we didn't mention here today, I think would be a miss. And it's actually something, uh, Dad, it reminded me of something you said to me um, a number of years ago, that as one of the essential parts of our life of faith is this element of mystery. Mm-hmm. That mystery is, um, it is the threshold we cross or the pathway that actually leads us to worship. Mm-hmm. So it's possible, right, in these studies and whatever, where we can come to things we don't understand. Uh, where, yes, we don't want to be intellectually lazy. Yes, we realize that disciplines like science and history and philosophy and art and our own dialogue with each other and our own life experiences can lead us to sort of study and understand. And yet there's a point for all of us, maybe other people's points higher than others, depending on whether you went to MIT or not, <laughs> where you get to a place where you say, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you said at that point where we have two choices, one is right. to walk away, right. right. And just to say, I don't, and, and even when it comes to God, like we, God, I don't understand, Never mind the science. I don't understand why you're allowing suffering in the mm-hmm. world. Like, mm-hmm. These are philosophical questions, right. Right? right? I don't understand why this is happening, that we can choose to walk away in despair or with a hard heart or just saying, I give up, or we can cross a threshold of mystery, mm. which leads us into worship. Mm. Why do you think it's so important for us to live in that tension and to, to begin to embrace um, mystery as an important part of our life as human beings and with God? Well, I think because anytime you step towards what is true, you, you become saner, as it were. Mm-hmm. You're taking one huge step toward reality. Every time you step away from what is real, you're stepping one step away from reality mm-hmm. and therefore something detrimental is happening to you. Mm-hmm. When you worship somebody, you're actually, oh God in this case, you're actually taking a huge step towards reality because some people have said one of the big obstacles to worship mm-hmm. is, well, that's so egotistical. Mm-hmm. Because if I said to you, I exist for one reason, I even raised you up with you so you would think what a great person I am and you would talk to, yeah, there was something wrong with me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there are, we have had bosses like that, we've had people like that, and that kind of self-focused arrogance is intrinsically repulsive. But we are drawn towards the humble person. Mm-hmm. Why is it the exact opposite with God? Why do, I mean, there are hundreds of commandments in the Bible to sing songs to Jesus and to worship him. Why? Does that not make him a supreme egotist? No, because in worship, you simply acknowledge the reality, who God is. Mm. You are just taking one step towards truth. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you're the one to be blessed because since God, by very definition, would be someone who doesn't need anything from us, he's self-existent, self-sufficient, all-sufficient, he doesn't need anything, uh, he doesn't need me to worship him to buffer up his ego. Mm-hmm. My worship doesn't give him anything. My refusal to worship doesn't take away anything from him. So it's only me that is at stake when I worship or don't. So mystery mm-hmm. is something that helps us to realize I'm not coming up against something irrational, but something that is supra-rational. My reason can take me so far. Jumping into mystery doesn't mean I abandon my reason. Yeah, that's good. Jumping means I now acknowledge that reason has brought me thus far, but there's no encounter that is required to complete. Faith and encounter with reality work hand in hand. So that's one big comment I'd like to make. The second thing is, when we worship, uh, when we worship God, 
Worship is a very, very broad term. But in most people's mind, it is associated with singing and music. And while that is detrimental in some ways, actually it's also true. Why is it that we so readily, at least we feel we haven't worshipped yet if we haven't sung mm -hmm. and if there isn't a band? Alan Bloom in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, said something that I've never forgotten. He said, music provides the unquestioned authentication for every activity that it accompanies. Armed with music, man can damn rational doubt. And I would say irrational doubt too. Mm. Let me say that again. Music provides the unquestioned authentication of any activity that it accompanies. That's why military armies have marching bands in them, right? Because it F is... Football given. fans. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. Right? The music is there. And the reason for that is poetry takes you where prose cannot. Prose is good for communicating facts and stuff mm. like that. But as my favorite author, Eugene Peterson, said, when we read poetry, we don't have more information. We have more immersion. Yeah. We don't have more analysis. We have more experience. experience yeah. And so when you take truth that is prosaic, we even call it prosaic. meaning. Right. So when people set to music and poetry, truths about God that do have the strong rational component that we've talked about. Yeah. But when we press these other faculties into service, yeah. there wells up within us this supra-rational affirmation. Yeah, this yeah. is true. Yeah. You know? And I, I think it, it points mm. to, I remember that one of the analogies you gave years ago was so helpful for me in this was, you know, when with this whole idea of worship and God commanding us to worship, that he doesn't need us. He isn't more worthy of worship if nobody worshipped him. Mm. You gave the analogy of go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, yeah. you, people don't drive. You've been to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah. People don't go, and you don't go to the gift shop outside the Grand Canyon. I'm sure there is one. Yeah, there, but, there probably and you buy a little keychain version of the Grand Canyon. You're like, oh, it's taking my breath away. It doesn't. You have it so you can put it in your pocket. And you remember, you go to the Grand Canyon because it's so big. Right. It takes your breath away when yeah. you see it. Mm. Now, if nobody went to see it, it wouldn't be any more magnificent. Exactly, it's exactly. It's not propped right, yeah, up. Yeah. You go because something happens to your soul when you see something, and you want, some of us want a raft in it. Some of us want to hang glide through it. Some of us, you, God, tried to get as close as you could to the edge to take a picture. Yeah, of it, I know. Right? The photographers, the videographers, the painters. What? And, and if there were songs to be written about it, people would, right? That's why it, it's, it's a spontaneous response of something that is so much bigger than you. And that is doing something to your body and your mind and soul that thrills you. That, of course, the only response is worship. And you know, it's interesting because, have you noticed, it simultaneously makes you feel small and large. And large, yeah. What's going on there? It makes you feel small in that it destroys your ego while enlarging your soul. Yeah, so good. And that's what is so important. Yeah. So it's not an yeah. either or. No, it's a we both actually hand. feel small in a way in the universe, yeah. and yet we can't take our eyes off yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's drawing us into right. its own glory, yeah. not ours. Right. And I think to say, okay, well then if God is, you know, <laughs> an old systematic theology professor who used to call God the oceanic immensity. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he wrote on the whiteboard, I was like, what does that even mean? His whole point was this, this is such a, like the, the Grand Canyon or your favorite, you know, uh, the, the greatest football match you've ever seen mm. is a glimpse of glory that in a sense draws you in. And, and so I think we could talk for, we're going to, we're yeah. out of time. But um, I, I think just to, to end here, even and as we go from this place is to say, okay, Part of the reason we are invited to study and to, to debate and to ask questions is so that we are not lazy, is so that yeah. we can grow mm. our understanding totally. of God. But ultimately, 
to actually draw us into that place of enthrallment where mind, body, and soul are saying, oh, you are so much bigger and greater. Uh, yeah, you even yeah. said this to me when we were talking about pre preparing for this, how your studies of science or whatever actually made you uh, worship God more, you realized how much greater he was. Right. And I think that's what all of the, you know, the many of the famous uh, Christians throughout history who were scientists said it, it actually brought their faith to a new level. Yeah. And I think that would be my desire and my hope for every one of us is that we would be willing to grow in our understanding mm -hmm. of this being that is so much greater than us, that in the one sense makes us feel small and big at the same time, and yet calls us friend. Um, son, daughter. Amen. He is the lover of our soul, not just the creator mm. of this world. And yeah. so my blessing for you, even as you sort of go from here and we close our service in more worship together, is that you would have an experience of being invited into that place of mystery with a God who you cannot understand fully, and yet you were invited to pursue right. and grow with your mind, with your heart, and with your soul. Mm. So thanks so much, Dad. That's great. We'll see you next week. Yeah.